This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. Where we're going, we don't need roads. Carpe diem. Seize the day, boys. Just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. Good morning, Vietnam! I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore! They call it a royale with cheese. I have always depended on the kindness of strangers. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Shaken, not stirred. They call me Mr. Tibbs. I'll have what she's having. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You make me want to be a better man. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Go ahead. Make my day. You can't handle the truth. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. May the force be with you. To infinity and beyond. They're here. Are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? Yes, we are, because this is the greatest movie of all time podcast. Welcome back to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I am Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. And tonight we are discussing uh, Apocalypse Now, uh, currently available on HBO if uh, you want to catch up. Um, this is the it's 19- also available on uh, Amazon Prime. Oh, I guess I didn't realize that. I thought I had searched the whole thing, but uh, that actually is probably more available to people than HBO. So, um that probably would have worked out better for us, although we're sharing both HBO and Prime accounts, at least on the uh, TV side. So um, that being said, this is the 1979 um, film by Francis Ford Coppola, uh, better known for his Godfather trilogy, but this is his other big uh, claim to fame. Um, just to give you a background or a summary on the movie, uh, in Vietnam in 1970, Captain uh, Willard, played by Martin Sheen, takes a perilous and increasingly hallucinatory journey upriver to find and terminate Colonel Kurtz, played by Marlon Brando, a once promising officer who has reportedly gone completely mad. In the company of the Na- a Navy patrol boat filled with street smart kids, a surfing obsessed air cavalry officer, Robert Duvall, and a crazed freelance photographer, Dennis Hopper, Willard travels further and further into the heart of darkness. Uh, So just further background, um, this is loosely based. uh, It keeps some of the same original material um, as a book from 1899 called Heart of Darkness, uh, which was about British imperialism in the Congo. Um, And um, it was adapted and retrofitted um, to uh, Vietnam. It is the only one that doesn't uh, directly adapt the source material um, as it was. Uh, there have been a couple of other attempts at um, adapting the source material into other things, notably uh, the first film that um, Orson Welles did for RKO was actually not Citizen Kane, but rather um, a version of this film, um, which never got out and uh, is kind of lost apparently to history. So, um, I guess one of the first things that I I think of, and it's kind of, um, it's difficult to get a part of it. It's kind of the sense of this film and what genre it fits into, but, um, I don't know if anybody's ever had the comment. This is kind of a film horror noir, um, it's not necessarily um, black and white, so it can't be the regular noir style, but with the commentary, the subject material, how they're discussing it, the tone, it does remind me a lot of that. And also kind of <clears throat> somewhat of a horror film, the further you go along. Well, there's so many shadows. So much of the character, especially in key scenes, are in the dark, which True. only perpetuates the film noir atmosphere. And just 
the um, increasing tension as they travel further and further on. Um, there are key elements of this that you can fit into either of those really genre settings um, without having much of a problem. Um, I mean, we start off the film with Captain Willard, um, again, Martin Sheen, um, in uh, one of his big starring roles uh, to that point. I do find it ironic that the movies that made him and uh, his son were both uh, Vietnam films about eight years apart, but... Um, this film starts off with him in a hotel room, um, basically going through a doldrum of madness until he can find a new mission. And basically giving us this layout of his need to go back into the jungle and into um, the the heart of darkness, if you will, um, to pursue the only thing that he knows that's become his reality. Well, in this particular case, and it's interesting to note that 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 scene was shot on Martin Sheen's 36th birthday, and he was indeed actually intoxicated when they filmed it because he had been celebrating his birthday. And he was not supposed to have broken the mirror and cut himself. That actually happened. Coppola just let the film run. And Sheen ad-libbed the whole thing with wiping the blood all over his face and head. I guess I didn't see that in my film research, so uh, that's a good tidbit. Um, I mean, frankly, I mean, we could probably go for an extra hour just on the making of this movie and how um, ridiculous it was to get this done, uh, how they were constantly having issues with going over budget, um, all the... Uh, rigmarole that Coppola had to do just to get it uh, funded to begin with. And like, he nearly killed himself. Famously, Martin Sheen had a heart attack on the set that delayed production forever. Marlon Brando showed up fat. Um, I mean, and took like an entire week. So like, you know, uh, of filming time just to get the character right, quote unquote. So like, you realize realize too that Martin Sheen's brother did a lot of the scenes that were from distance or in shadows so that they could film during the period of time Martin Sheen was recovering. Also, the the uh, oration that Martin Sheen does during the film is not Martin Sheen. It's his brother because he was too busy or he was still recovering. And so his brother started doing the taping of it. And so it's his brother doing that, not Martin Sheen. Really? Okay. Yeah, I, I didn't get most of that. And like I said, I mean, this is, is a very famous um, movie of how they had to film it and all of the issues that they had to go through uh, in order to get this. Um, we go to the second really big scene after he's in his own hotel room when he finally gets his mission. Um, weirdly that we get a, a kind of a odd cameo by Harrison Ford. Um, who just happens to pop up as one of the two commanding officers giving him his mission. But um, we get to one of the lines that's probably kind of the the summation of this movie. Um, And I'm trying to uh, find it here. Uh, Let's see here. I I might actually have it in my notes. Um, Well, you see, Willard, in this war, things get confused out there. Power, ideals, the old morality practical military necessity but out there with these natives it must be temptation to be god because there's a conflict in every human heart between the rational and the irrational between good and evil and good does not always triumph sometimes the dark side overcomes what lincoln called the better angels of our nature every man has got a breaking point you and i have one walter kurtz has reached his and very obviously he has gone insane um basically setting up and kind of the fact that um, the, the, as the film goes along, you know, we're, we're building up to that climactic um, scene sequence where eventually Willard and Kurtz um, meet and kind of face off and that they have their inevitable conclusion. But the entire film is building to that from that moment. He gets his mission. He's got to kill Kurtz. 
and they use every piece of this movie to continue to build the tension until that happens. Every piece is funneled into that um, aspect, you know, everything from reading Kurtz's letters to his son, to uh, reading all of his history, to giving you a better insight, and it's kind of setting up this um, almost this character beyond what he actually is. I mean, we've talked about it previously prior to this movie and its generality, but that Brando is very not, or is not really in this film very much. Um, he's maybe in a fifth of it or less. And most of the film is made by creating this image of him before we even meet him in person. Uh, that he's kind of this antagonist that's not really the antagonist. Uh, the antagonist itself is kind of the madness that he endures in order to get to uh, finishing his mission. Well, the, the, the madness <clears throat> he endures in going through the mission is supposed to shed light on how Kurtz got to the point of his madness. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, it does go in stark contrast. So this is like the second of the really big, uh, Vietnam films. Um, the deer hunter came out the year before this. Um, but this is one of the few where it started to really adapt, um, to this style. But like, uh, as far as the famous Vietnam films, this is, this may as well be the first one of actually, um, creating the events that were part of it and it doesn't do anything it's not a biopic it's not um a battle sequence or um, a memorialization of anything it's adapting a novel that was not even about the subject material but um relaying it into a story about a similar topic and using the same themes of uh madness and horror and imperialism um, brutality um to tell a story of uh, kind of against the American occupation uh, of Vietnam. Well, yes. I, I mean, you have to... These evolved, okay? The first films, if you want to call them films on Vietnam, were not even films about Vietnam, more about the conflict at home or the returning. And coming home, John Voight, Jane Fonda, and Bruce Dern was one of the first bigger ones. That that predates yeah. these. And that's a, yes, by a year. Yeah, that came out the same year as the Deer Hunter. But that's the return home aspect. This is the first one where it really sign significantly recreated conditions of what it was actually like to be in Vietnam during the war. Um, not in the same way. I think Platoon does a better job of um, getting in that type of thing. But this gives more of a sense of the larger it it creates the tone of how we remember vietnam you know much in the same way you look at all and i find this and you can't watch this movie and watch you know some of your favorite world war ii films and just notice the stark difference in tone you know in all of the world war ii films and how we look at them and perceive them you know whether that's the great escape or um you know, Bridge Over the River Kwai or any of these other ones. It's grand. There's a certain level of dignity and magnificence that goes on about these films. The um, villains are clearly defined. There's a simple good and evil. Um, and, you know, the good guys are going to eventually triumph over the bad guys and win out. In everything about Vietnam, the antagonist is hidden. Um, it's we don't know exactly what it is. Sometimes you're fighting against yourself. Um, the themes are much more convoluted and layered. Um, we get a lot darker tones and we get a lot of um, these anti-hero types. I mean, no more notable than the middle of this movie um, and what is going to be probably my nominee for best scene is the boat raid. Um, in the middle of this movie, they're going downriver, and they're getting to the point where um, they're uh, past uh, the border from Vietnam into Cambodia. And the or chief pulls over the other boat and decides he wants to search it, even though Willard tells him not to. 
which ends inevitably with them uh, after having innocently shot um, several different villagers uh, because one of them flinched. He ends up killing the one that was wounded and so that they can move on. I mean, it's the definition of anti-hero. He's the guy that you're rooting for to eventually kill Kurtz to win out in the end. But he's as bad or as mad as just about everybody else in this movie. Well, that's correct. But <clears throat> really, you have to understand, there's about a 10-year period. I would say those who graduated from high school from about 1976 until about 19... Well, I take that back. There's a period after the Vietnam War from 76 until about 1985. If you graduated from high school, you looked on the military as a clusterfuck. That's all you thought about it. And that's because of all the things that were released, all the just horrible things about Vietnam that were brought back, how it was just uh, we were lied to, stuff was fabricated, the, there was no clear purpose. It was senseless, et cetera. And that was drilled into us. It wasn't until Reagan and the change in culture. Really, I'm the last year of the baby boom. <clears throat> and it's my class, my grade, that really is one of the last to experience that kind of attitude. You know, when when <clears throat> the military or the army came in and gave us aptitude tests, um, I cut class. There was a whole group of us that cut glass. <clears throat> what we did was is we uh, phoned uh, phoned in um, that we were sick, and we hid <laughs> we hid in the um, uh, in a secret uh, uh, loft area of the uh, stage at Boyd Memorial High School. That you had to the only way you could get to was to go on the catwalk over the stage over the stage um, about seventy feet up in the air in order to get to it. We hid in there so we didn't have to take this test because the idea of taking this on behalf of the Army was so revolting that none of us were willing to do it. And so, but that's what this, this movie represents. This is the attitude. This kind of feeling is what was going on. It wasn't until Reagan came in and cha started changing the attitude and the respect and the... Uh, uh, respect given to the military service again that this changed but there's a whole group of us that just never in a million years thought of even going into the military for that reason so you know i just from a to switch um topics just slightly um one of the senses that i clearly got um this is one of the um best set piece shot films in a long time. I mean, it did win best or best cinematography at the Oscars that year. And frankly, it should have, I mean, I can see a lot of the camera work, um, that ends up being flashed forward in a lot of different regards. Uh, I immediately, so when they're up in the, uh, helicopters, um, going and they're going to, uh, attack this new beachhead, uh, so that they can get to this best surfing place. Um, the helicopter work and how they shot everything and the kind of how everything was uh, ridden, um, how, how they did the airstrikes. I mean, that a lot of that was reminiscent of work that you could see in a lot of action films going on for the next 20 years. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, like the, the climactic scenes from Die Hard with the chopper, it looks very similar to the camera work for that. Uh, it reminded me of um, kind of how they shot the bus in speed and kind of that like uh, above angle. Um, Top Gun has a lot of those when they're up in the fighter jets. You know, some of those that camera work is stuff that has and I still think they're um, pawning off in a certain regard. Um, again, the, the biggest thing for this entire movie is just um, the ever increasing um, tension that comes from the whole thing. Um, the tiger scene, um, where they're out in the middle of the jungle going for mangoes and they almost get eaten to, um, the, the boat search to, um, when they're, um, setting off flares in the boat and suddenly there are rockets firing at them everywhere. 
to finally meeting Kurtz. Like, every part of this uh, movie is channeling up toward that uh, piece. And that I, I that that's my biggest takeaway from this whole thing. Well, I think there's two. It's, you're also missing that there's an internal struggle. <clears throat> up until the point where Sheen actually puts on the camouflage paint and goes and, and jumps into the water and, and goes and, and ultimately kills Kurtz, you can't tell whether Sheen's going to be as uh, end up as insane as Kurtz and not kill him because it already happened to the previous guy they sent. Where That's true. You know, so you're sitting there going, well, is he going to do it or is he not going to do it? I mean, I had a hard time trying to remember. I mean, I knew the ending of the film, but I could, you know, I lost some of the the uh, uh, suspense of it because of that fact. But it had been so long since I had seen this movie. I had seen this movie on HBO in 1981. I think that's the last time I've seen this movie. I mean, it's, it's not one, and this will get into some of the categories for later. Um, it's extremely dense. Like there is nothing about this film that is like satisfying. It is a great work of art. I don't think it's, um, in the same vein, like a pulpy, action film that you really want to revisit a lot of times no in fact um having seen it in 1981 and now seeing it again in 2020 um i would very much say that it's likely that i'll never watch it again i mean that that is 39 years so um but i you know there are some fine cameos in this uh we already mentioned harrison ford um Dennis Hopper, I I don't know what it is about him, but I seem to like him every time he's in a film, regardless of what he does. And frankly, his character doesn't make a lot of sense in this movie. Um, He's just kind of rambling, and he's kind of this weird acolyte. It's another one of the characters pulled off from the source material, but he's got all of these weird ramblings that um, he's trying to speak through Willard almost for Kurtz. I, I mean, it, I, I just, it was an odd um, thing. Um, you know, Kurtz's mind is fine, but his soul is corrupted. Okay. Yeah. I mean, personally, I believe that there are two things that exist outside of um, the physical nature of humans, both the mind and the soul. But, you know, it, everything about this, and even up to that climactic aspect, they don't. One of the things about this is it didn't do the cliche thing that we've had in a lot of the other movies we've had, where they have the title somewhere embedded in one of the lines of the film. The only reference to Apocalypse Now is something written on the wall um, of the boat landing when they find Kurtz. And really, all it has to do is, sim- or similarly, when they find the book of Kurtz's writings where it's drop the bomb, exterminate them all. You know, the the difference between um, where we cut off uh, that you need to simultaneously um, have these people that are educated or at least uh, morally educated enough. Uh, and I know there's a quote from this in the movie, so I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but the morally educated enough to know the difference between who you are supposed to kill and who you're not but also be strong enough to just kill everybody like that you have to. And that it's similar to kind of how we're still talking about some of like the Iraq veterans. I mean, we notably have a couple of family members that have to think in that same regard, you know, that have had to either shoot kids um, that were potential threats or whatever else that anybody could be an enemy. They're holding grenades or guns. So, Let's say it like it is. Well, like, but that anybody can be a potential threat and that simultaneously you have to be able to decipher and get through the morality of what it could be. And that's the um, untold side of guerrilla warfare. It's it's paranoia. 
it instills in you a sense of paranoia, which you cannot escape. And that's ultimately what destroys your soul. The paranoia, where you can't trust anybody. And that's really where guerrilla warfare scores its marks. But in this case, you mentioned Dennis Hopper. And, I'll, and again, I had forgotten that Dennis Hopper, either I forgot that Dennis Hopper was in this film, or when I saw this in 1981, I had no idea who Dennis Hopper was. Okay, That's more likely. Yeah, because you know Dennis Hopper had that hair, was big in the 60s, early 70s. Easy Rider and such, and then he had that period of time where he was trying to dry out. And well, then I mean, I saw this only like eight or nine years ago, and I forgot he was in this. So, but go yeah. ahead. Anyway, but Dennis Hopper, and apparently from what I'm reading, Dennis Hopper and uh, and Marlon Brando came to blows or almost to blows multiple times and had to be restrained. Okay, and. It makes it makes no sense, but it makes perfect sense because they're both out of the actor's studio. They're both method actors in the Stanislavski method. And so they both were in character. And so my guess is they did drive each other insane because their characters drove each other insane. But I, I but you know, Duval got famously nominated for best supporting for this movie um i i think you know if i had a um best uh, minor performance and i'm kind of getting into some of the categories like he has probably one of the more memorable performances of this um i don't particularly think that brando like other than we know it's brando um did anything particularly notable in this film um yes, especially he did. For, Yes, he did. Okay. He got Go paid, ahead. He got paid fourteen million dollars for appearing in a film for one fifth of the time. That's what he got noted for. And in fact, almost all of his later films, Brando was willing to do character roles because he could command huge amounts of money without doing hardly any work at all. And he was mailing it in. And that's what ended up happening. If if you look at it, he was paid fourteen million dollars for this film. And I think that was he, high from the number I read, but continue. You you factor it in. It's like he paid like $40 million for this film now. And in fact, um, when I was in college, my freshman year of Chicago, I listened to a radio show with Steve Dahl. Steve Dahl was the original shock jock before Howard Stern ever was even on the air. And he would play an excerpt in his introduction of Robert Duvall's uh, napalm uh, speech. And then he would, uh, then he would come in and he would talk about, about all this stuff. Anyway, um, uh, in, in that, uh, where was I going with this? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely drawing a blank at the moment where I was going with this. But um, but Duvall's character, oh, that was it. The producer of the Steve Dahl show, his job had been to work for the movie uh, company. And I can't remember who did this film. If it was Paramount? Anyway, the way Brando had it structured was, is in order to save taxes, he got to be paid a check every day. And so this guy's job was for like six months to drive a check out to Brando's house and deliver it to Brando for like $144,000. And so the line was that he used on the show is another day, another $144,000. <clears> and that's how Brando existed. He, he was just at this point in time, his reputation was bigger than his desire to actually perform. He, after having, Run of success with The Godfather and then Last Tango in Paris. He could command whatever he wanted, and his name carried weight. And so he would just ask for large amounts of money, hold out for it until somebody was willing to pay it with well, promise of doing almost nothing. To be fair, I did look a little bit at Brando's um, kind of bio on some of this. Like, um, in order to get him to do The Godfather, they originally gave him a percentage of the uh, residuals. 
or a percentage of the the gross for like one percent which because he was so strapped for cash at the time he actually sold back to paramount pictures uh for like uh only about nine hundred thousand dollars so he ended up passing on like 30 million because he needed the money so honestly you know by comparison that's that's not it but I think your number's high. I think I read somewhere between three to five million for this movie because the uh, total operating budget was only thirty-one, and they had a ton of um, bigger stunts and um, set pieces that required it, it, a lot. Yeah, it was thirty-one, but it ended up being over a hundred. That was what the final cost of the film was—over a hundred million dollars. Okay. That and, and again, I overrun. you know. Coppola ended up putting all of his own money in to keep the film going. I mean, there is a famous documentary uh, called Heart of Darkness about the making of this film. So if anybody's interested in watching that, I would point you out to that. I don't know where you'd find it. You could probably um, obtain it on like Amazon or whatever, or any paid service uh, to like rent or buy it. But, um, you know, it might be worth uh, your time if you're curious about how a lot of this came about. Uh, it's still very famous. So, all right. So we'll get into the categories, kind of like we did last week. Um, we're just gonna uh, designate it, go a little bit backward from what we had originally been doing, um, and uh, we're gonna give um, the uh, scores last. We're gonna take um, the actual film portions of this uh, first. So, um, what did you have as your best performance? Um, I, I think, uh, the best performance was Duvall. So I have him as my minor performance. Um, personally, I have best performance down as Coppola just because, um, this is, you know, for as much praise as he gets for the Godfather movies, I honestly think he put more heart and soul into this, uh, than he did any of those three. All right. So, um, but, you know, on the same line, I, Duvall is just so classic in this entire film that, you know, he's uh, more worried about being able to surf um, than whether or not he's killing a bunch of guys and lighting up a tree line, um, you know, and whether or not Kurtz has anything to, or not Kurtz, but uh, Willard uh, can continue with his mission is subsequent to uh, the size of the potential swells where he might end up. Well, and and uh, Duvall's character is so epitomizes um, that type of officer that you hear about or read about or follow along that is, you know, the epitome of what mili- the military was or is at times. This just bizarre caricature. I mean, down to the fact that he's wearing a cavalry uh, hat from the um, from the cavalry era of the late 19th century, to the fact that uh, you know he is constantly talking about surfing. Well, so. it, it just shows his, um, and, and again, I think it, it it does give a sense of how little they cared about. Um, the life of human beings per se, because it it had just grown so um, tiresome when you've seen that many people die or uh, that much happen. um, You just kind of um, what's, what's the word Um, zone out from, you know, having any feeling you become numb to the whole experience. And so you're only going for the immediacy of the pleasures that you can potentially possess and for him, I guess, in this case, comically, it's surfing. Well, you know, I get this comment constantly from people, which is, is attorneys can come across as being callous and cold. Well, it's because you're constantly having to deal with um, some of the worst situations, some of the worst persons, some of the worst um, events that are humanly possible. You have a choice. You can wallow in the, the misery of it and end up drowning yourself or you can exercise a level of diffidence and come across as being callous because it's a it's a self it's a self-protection mechanism 
you know, to not get emotionally involved. And that's what you're seeing with these officers is, is they're just not involved. They, they, you know, their, their job is to kill. So they kill and they just don't think about it because they don't need to think about it. If they think about it, then it just eats you. Which it inevitably does everybody else as we go along in this movie. Um, so, uh, that brings us to another new um, category that we've created, um, mo- the Most Charismatic Award. I have down either Duvall again or Dennis Hopper. Duvall. Dennis Hopper's character, uh, that award should be most uh, the character you'd most like to punch in the face. See, I didn't get that at all. That, oh, for me, I, that- I just... He, he just reminded me of so many of the... Um, he was the epitome of the uh, 70s hippie. That's what okay. he was. And, you know, it's just like, you know, the, 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 the Dennis Hopper character would normally be so anti-military. He would go out of his way to criticize the military. Instead, he becomes a sycophant of Kurtz. So I did learn um, <laughs> that word this week. So, uh, but the word that has a face that is punchable, uh, backfifa or gesicht. And I probably butchered the shit out of that. But, you know, the fact that there is a word that actually is someone who has a punchable face. I love the fact that that's a, that exists in this uh, context. So, all right. It's, it's um, German because in Germany... They just add words together to create new words, and it works. So, um, uh, best scene for you? My favorite scene is always going to be Duvall with the smells or smells like victory. That napalm smell. That just so epitomizes the attitude of so many that were that came back whole out of Vietnam is that's what their attitude was. That's how they came back whole. If you thought about it, that's the ones that came back and ended up alcoholics or drug addicts or suicidal and spent their time in, in patient or ended up homeless. Um, the ones who didn't were able to survive. And that's the attitude that sums the attitude up of those who were able to get through it and not have a problem living with it. So, um, for me, it was, I already mentioned this, but the boat raid gone wrong. Um, I, I just, I found that to be kind of the most, um, moving of any of the scenes in there for just how much of a high and low, uh, you had in that. I have a couple of others that I could have mentioned, but to me that, that, was probably the most significant because that was where the movie seemed to really take a turn and uh, move towards the um, final kick where they're completely uh, gone off the rails looking for Kurtz or in that final stretch. Um, And I mean, it's right after that, that everybody starts dying. So the film is, becomes much less enjoyable. Uh, It becomes more of a a heavier uh, sense and tension that, um, you've really reached a new level after that scene. Um, my favorite, so we added in the new category, favorite scene. Um, I would guess that's where you're at with this one. I put it as actually trying to surf the swells in between the gunfire and the rockets, you know, and uh, uh, trying to get out there and like, hey, yeah, let's lay down a... Um, uh, a airstrike so that nobody's going to fire more stuff so we can go out onto the surf at this point. Yeah. That, so that just seems so. Yeah. So, uh, I already gave and kind of read earlier, um, what I thought was the best line, because as I've mentioned previously, I tend towards, um, uh, kind of summation lines, but, uh, I'll give another one for honorable mention. Um, you have to have men who are moral and then at the same time were able to utilize their primordial instincts to kill without feeling, without passion, without judgment, without judgment, 
because it's judgment that defeats us. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just, you know, it's one of those where it's not one of, neither of those is the more famous lines, um, but it's, I think it gives a little bit more background, and those are the ones that really give you an idea into what this movie is about. It does, and I think that's really what you're talking about. So, um, what was your nominee for best line? Well, I, again, it's the napalm line. It smells okay. like victory. Um, so, I will give it actually the closing line, um, or the line of Kurt says he's dying, the horror, the horror. Okay. So I have that as actually my most indelible moment. Uh, but just because uh, I also put that in another new category, funniest line. Um, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. You know, one time we had a hill bombed for 12 hours. When it was all over, I walked up. We didn't find one of them. Not one stinking dink body. The smell, you know, that gasoline smell, the whole hill smelled like victory yeah so um, what for you is the most indelible moment then um it's i know that the new category is is uh sum up the movie in 10 words or less well, that was- and that was that, the last piece we're going to get to, but if you want to well, jump to that, go right ahead. It's the same one, which is the horror, the horror. Because to me, that is the summation of the film, and that is the line that's indelible, and that's really what the whole purpose of the movie was, is to show that this is all horror. And how you react or how you deal with that horror is the difference between whether you are going to survive and in this case, mentally or not. So my uh, summation in 10 words or less, Coppola's adaptation of classic novel on madness and true horror. Okay. So, well, um, all I right. Mean, so, In fact, okay. you know, when you talk about this, this is a film that was, what, two and a half hours long? Yeah. Okay, and it's based on the, the novella it's not even a full book, The Heart of Darkness, written by Joseph Conrad. Okay, it was a series of short uh, or short little novellas. I think there were four in the book that Conrad released in 1899. So this isn't even that long of a piece. And this is what ends up happening, you know, as a result of it, is, is you, you get a, th- a two-and-a-half-hour adaptation. Yeah, I shouldn't need to tell you to turn off your ringtone, but it does fit with the theme of the podcast. I thought I had, but anyway. That's fine. All right, so we'll get into this, uh, the scoring here. So for Legacy, um, I would say that this is an extremely famous film. Um, It's been cut multiple times. Uh, There are multiple different um, versions of this film that exist. It is still notable. I mean, the fact that there was a documentary just solely made uh, about the making of this film, um, I, I, I think it's high. I don't know if it's one of the, um, like, the the top ten that you um, immediately think of when you when Hollywood asked about uh, certain films, but if it, you're asked about Vietnam films, this is probably one of the first ones that comes up. Well, it's interesting to, to know, too, and I think we were seeing the original released version, um, but there is yes. another version. There are three other versions of the same of Apocalypse Now, because yes. what ends up happening is is that um, the studio re- agreed to agreed to um, um, finish production of the film, but then Coppola lost editing and control, artistic control of the film at the end. So. Coppola fought with the studio for a number of years and won a legal battle and finally got control. So he recut it. And this was back in the mid-90s, late 90s, somewhere in there, and then re-released it as to his uh, idea of the way it should be cut and the way that it should have been presented. So I haven't seen that version to determine which really was the better film. 
So notably, uh, I would say that it's interesting because, I mean, this film did get um, nominated for uh, uh, Best Editing or Best Film Editing that year. So that that is interesting by just that mark. But um, what it... I have seen the the first version of this that I saw was um, the director's cut, which is about three hours instead of two and a half. So it's actually a longer film. Uh, but they had multiple versions of, of this film on Netflix at one point. So it might behoove you. I know you said you probably aren't going to watch it again, but like maybe go and watch the last hour of the movie if it's ever on Netflix again. Um and just see where the difference lies. I don't think the the beginning parts of the film are really going to be cut all that differently. Honestly, I do, um, for the most part, the first two-thirds of the film, frankly, um, seemed uh, to be very similar to what I remembered. But um, I, I that's where the difference lies. So it, it, it was a little bit striking. I didn't remember much of the ending, which is part partly why but um so what did you have down for legacy score though so i had an eight and a half nine so you had a nine yep i can go up to a nine i mean this is a novel war film where um we have the true difference and one of the most indelible of the period so i you have to give it some level of Thing. The reason I had it as, at an eight and a half was is I had impact or significance higher. Again, from a cinematography standpoint, um, from a tone standpoint, for uh, honestly, Platoon doesn't win Best Picture in '87 um, or was it '87 or '88? It's one of the two. Um, without this movie, um, they don't come about. Full Metal Jacket doesn't get made without this movie. Uh, I don't think The Hurt Locker gets made in the same way without this movie, uh, which eventually won Best Picture. Okay, you have to understand that war films were Sergeant York, were yes. um, The Sands of Iwo Jima, um, you know. Um, this day. Yeah. You know, it, it was clear, you know, you knew the good guys and the bad guys, and there was no blurring or no distinction. This film was the first to really... In a in a war setting, blur the distinction, okay? You know, and he, and it sets up. If you look at back, the, one of the scenes of the impacts in Saving Private Ryan that I found interesting is, you know, the German that they end up um, that surrenders to them. Part of them or part of the group wants to kill him because they can't take him as prisoners or as a prisoner. Tom Hanks's character, Captain Miller, releases him, and that guy ends up being the person who kills Miller at the end of the film. Okay, it's it's the anti-apocalypse um, uh, now version where moral uh, the person acts in a moral regard, and ultimately that's what ends up coming back to to, to destroy himself is being moral in a war with no morality. Well, we had a similar scene from 1917 last year that kind of ended up in the same regard. So I, I do think this has a long tail for how war films and um, some of these themes have been played out for the last uh, nearly 40 years. Yeah. So, um, I mean, from that side, I probably should even bump up the novelty score. But uh, just on impact significance, I had it at a nine and a half. I would agree. Uh, novelty, uh, and some of this has where um, we're already discussing it, you know, how different this was from other war films of the time. Again, this is coming after Deer Hunter won the year before. So I think that some of this is already seeping into the culture. And you'd already talked about kind of the counterculture and the anti-hero. I mean, this is by no means inventing those things. Uh, no, but it the- is... It is a modern noir film um, in a war setting, giving you a, a much different archetype of character than had been to that point. So while I'm going to knock it a little bit um, for you know playing off of some other themes, it was still very novel. So I had it in eight, as an eight and a half. I would go nine. 
But and you mentioned the counterculture. The first film that I really remember being the counterculture was The Dirty Dozen, which was a 1965 film. I didn't obviously see it when it was released because I would have been two. But um, well, hold on with too many things and talking about it too much. That's a film that we have coming up in a few weeks. All right. Well, anyway, that's, you know, but even there, the good guys were, were the bad guys, but they were clearly distinguished. You knew who they were. In this, you've got people in with internal turmoil. And I think ultimately that struggle of morality and internal turmoil, morality versus survival, is what makes this um, of note and why I would give it a nine. So um, as far as classicness, um, honestly, I gave this a nine and a half. There really isn't anything in here that didn't age well um, as far as this could have been made five years ago as far as like the camera work is still uh, excellent. Um, The storytelling is excellent. I don't think there's uh, an editing or uh, any of the action sequence that really feels out of place. Um, I I really didn't have a problem with this as being classic um, or really, you know, anything as far as that I had it at a nine and a half. I'll agree with you on that one. I had it at a nine. Um, the only thing I would say that makes it as far as not being classic, I think at this point in time, there would be a tendency to glorify the military a little more than there was in this film. All right, so I'll bump it down to the nine then, um, just overall. So uh, if you've been following along, we had a nine for legacy, nine and a half for impact significance, uh, eight and a half for novelty, and uh, nine for classicness. So I think you're going to probably go a little bit lower on me um for rewatchability i had it at a six but again i could very easily go lower because this is just such a dense movie this is not something and when i talk about rewatchability if i'm sitting around and i'm bored on an evening and there's not much on and i'm starting to flip through the channels there are certain films that if they come up and i see them i'll go oh i've already missed an hour of the film but i've seen this film so many times I'll watch the last hour. Yeah. This is not Apocalypse Now. This is one where if I'm going to watch, or if I find this movie on, I'll go, oh, Apocalypse Now. Oh, I'm not watching this. Um, This is not not one where you're picking it up midway and you can just follow the same thing. Or, I mean, you and I were already talking about the fact that we both seen the film previously and didn't remember significant portions of the movie. Yeah. I actually added it a four for that reason. All right. So I'll split the difference. We'll go with a five on that. Um, And I I do think that's why the category is in there is that this is going to receive high marks as an art film, but it doesn't have that like fun factor to it at the same time. So um, that being said, uh, the audience score for this is a 94. So that's going to put it at 9.4 points. And we took out the recognition category. So this overall is going to receive a 50.4 overall rating, uh, which puts it actually, I think, either number uh, two or number three. Uh, I do need to note here that uh, my math was off on the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so there is a new updated list on uh, my personal blog at the moment uh, where you can visit uh, and... um, get all of the lowdown on the show. Uh, there's a bunch of new content that uh, I have continually going. Uh, anything I've been watching during uh, quarantine is up there uh, for anybody to follow. Uh, I have some uh, movie reviews from last year, although there aren't a lot of new movies coming out right now unless they're on streaming. Um, so, And uh, due to the other podcasts that I'm currently doing, Uh, I will be having um, some fantasy football content going up here pretty soon on that as well. Um, That being uh, said, uh, yes, I believe this slots in as number two on our overall list. Um, And uh, I do also feel like I need to note, just for the recognition side of things, this film was nominated in 1979 for Best Picture Director, Supporting Actor, Adapted Screenplay, Film Editing, and Art Direction, It won for Best Sound and Cinematography. It appeared also on the AFI's uh, Top 100 list um, in in both iterations. So it is a significant film in 
um, just overall history. Um, and uh, at least uh, going forward on that um, should continue to be. I would, I'm going to honestly say having been to the Louvre uh, in Paris and having seen in person the Mona Lisa, I'm going to consider these categories for like impact or whatever. We almost have like the Mona Lisa award, which is, it is an artistic gem and is very famous and well done. But once you see it, you go, eh, this is what everybody's been raving about. Um, this is one where it's artistic and I enjoyed the film, but it's not one where I'm going to go, oh, I got to see that again. Yeah, and I, I can buy that. Um, that's why I think that during certain points of the year, we're going to have bonus episodes where we revisit some of these. Um, just because as we're going along, we're already adapting and uh, reworking some of the details. Um, so that's only out of necessity, but um, it does slot in as the number two overall film uh, at the moment. Some like it hot number one? Yes, currently at 51.4, um, and uh, Raiders is now number three. Okay, I could... I. I think we're on track right now as far as the films themselves that we've seen, where they should be. Um, Goodfellas is just below Raiders, so, I mean, it's it's really not that bad. And we've had seven pretty good films up to this point, so I'm not going to lament it. Uh, I know some people might um, disagree somewhat with our scoring, but I do seem to think that um, overall the films are probably in the order I might have them myself. Uh, save for I probably would have Raiders over Apocalypse now, but you know that overall again that one being our first that might be uh, a nominee eventually for a revisit. So we'll see. So yeah, but uh, otherwise, um, any last uh, thoughts on the film? You think this is going to be in the top one hundred or? Uh, did you want to have the best picture conversation from that year? What won that year? Kramer versus Kramer. That is a film that I have not seen since I saw it at the theater. Okay. I mean, we're running a bit on time. Um, I think maybe we can save that conversation for when uh, Kramer versus Kramer comes up. I think it's actually a conversation worth having because uh, by debate of the rest of the films from 1979 – this is by far the only one that I would have said um, has a comparison level. So, um, or that could have dethroned it. And this one might have more staying power overall, but uh, it's been a while since I've seen Kramer versus Kramer either. Um, so, um, but that'll be one we'll probably revisit at a different point in time. So I do think this will likely make the top 100 when it's all said and done, but um, we got a ways to go on that. So. Yeah, well, and talking about Kramer versus Kramer, yeah, um, 41, 42 years since I've seen it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, all right. Uh, next week, we're covering In the Heat of the Night. Uh, that's currently available on Amazon Prime, uh, at least in the States, uh, for anybody that's um, watching for that. So, um if you want to watch ahead and uh, be able to have that in the bag for next week, uh, I am looking forward to that one. I really enjoyed my first overall viewing of that. Uh, again, um, listen for uh, our episode next week uh, when we have when we're visiting that. Uh, otherwise, uh, I have some new podcasts coming out this week on the Dynasty download. Um, if anybody'd like to take a listen, so uh, where can we find you? Well. Most of the time sitting at home right now. Well, that's not exactly what I meant, but how can we get in contact with you? Um, anybody who really is interested, um, I'm on Facebook as uh, Dana W. Duggan. And uh, email, my personal email address, if anybody has anything they comment about, civilwarhistory63 at gmail.com. So either find me on my uh, blog that's always going to be in the show notes or uh tj3.duncan at gmail.com um twitter handle at tj3duncan uh we'll see you guys next week i do wish we could chat longer but i'm having an old friend for dinner after all 
Tomorrow is another day. As always, please subscribe, rate, and comment on the show from wherever you get your podcasts. It will help everyone else find the show and share in the fun. If you would like to suggest a movie we should review or potentially guest star on one of the episodes, please follow either Dana or I on Twitter uh, at TJ3Duncan or at Dana W. Duncan. 